Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets Podcast. It is 10.30 a.m. in the UAE. Not quite sure what time it is everywhere else, but anywhere, I I think some of our panelists are up early, and we appreciate that. Their minds are awake, because I know they've had at least three shots of of something. Uh, So... What's happening? Brent crude oil this morning trading uh, a little bit uh, higher uh, as it sort of created some momentum yesterday uh, with Brent crude oil uh, moving up uh, above 81.61. At the moment, it's little change, seems to be bouncing up a few pennies and down a few pennies. But ultimately, wind in the sails, it would appear uh, uh, after uh, some great uncertainty uh, last week. Let's kick off this morning and going to uh, Paul Hicken, Editor-in-Chief at Petroleum Economist. Paul, what's your read at this stage? Obviously, the big news of the week in terms of the immediacy of the oil markets has been what's happening at OPEC+. Plus. So my question to you is what's happening at OPEC+, Plus and what do you think is uh, the decisions that will be made this week by the group? Yeah, so... Obviously, the real question is, it's probably three ways we can look at it. First of all, there's the dispute over baselines, which has been well documented over Africa. I think that that issue is complicated more. I mean, if you talk about Africa baselines, then it's probably not that big an issue in some ways um, for OPEC Plus as a wider group. Yes, it is a big deal for Angola and Nigeria, but... I think for a wider group, you've, you've probably got other pain points. You remember Iran, it's come back another million barrels a day of supply over the past year. You know, that's the, that's the Saudi lollipop that right there. It might not be as widely acknowledged because they, they're exempt from quotas, but that's a real pain point for Iran. Even Libya, you know, 1.2 million barrels a day. It's It's been stable for, for some time now. It's unusually for Libya and, and all, all, all good for them. But at the same time, for OPEC Plus, that's another complication because they were they had quotas drawn up around the 1.6 million barrels a day. And, and how realistic is that in the next few years? It's it looking like 1.2 is, um, is more the stable level. And there are probably things going back in the back channels even around these they're in these situations, not just because you think about for the year ahead and you look in if OPEC Plus is looking for probably hunkering down for, for a, a while into next year. If you look at where, you know, the bearish trends in, in China and the OECD still, we, we're not out the woods at all. And it, they're probably thinking, well, you know, if we just get a rollover, uh, you know, and if Saudi's just picking up the tab, you know, how long is that sustainable? You know, especially if they really want to support that $80 barrel a day uh, oil price floor. And, you know, this is it's still some hard talks going on. I think there will probably there will be a deal being done. But if it's just a rollover and a little bit of a fudge. You know, we could be back here in early January again, and, and nobody wants nobody really wants that. They've, they've, that's happened before in the past as well, and they've probably learned the lesson from that. So that's why they've delayed the meeting to really try and get a proper deal, proper agreement with where everyone's on board with. Um, Let's go to Matt, Matthew Wright, a senior freight analyst at Kepler, to read the tea leaves. Uh, Matthew, uh, in the world of freight and the macroeconomic outlook quite often can be uh, the cuckoo in the coal mine is on the freight rates. What are we seeing there to tell us about the health of global economic growth and demand in the first quarter? Yeah, yeah. And I, and good morning, everybody. I completely agree with Paul. I think um, if you go back a couple of months, the narrative was, oh, do you know what? It's looking like a rollover is 
going to be the status quo. And now we're in a situation where it, we're, a rollover is not really going to be enough even, is it? Um, yeah, I agree. You know, you've got the noise, you sort of the side uh, issues around Angola, Nigeria. Um, you know, I think there's a little bit of a mismatch in terms of where they've allocated the new revised cuts. But um, like you said, that's not the main story. The main story is just the overall the overall target. Um, our view at the moment is definitely going to be a rollover, but not just through to the first quarter, through the whole of 2024. Um, and deeper cuts are definitely, definitely on the table. But Saudi's going to be looking to see if everybody else is is willing to sort of participate. On the freight side, um, it, it, you know, we've got we're entering a period of uh, traditional um, seasonal strength. Um, we had a real big jump in some rates uh, last month, but that's sort of cooled off a bit. The main narrative around VLCCs is everybody is looking to the Atlantic for what is going to set the price, not the Mid East Gulf. The Mid East Gulf, there's, there's, it's, it's clearly the main load area from VLCCs. But in terms of spot market activity, everyone is looking to Brazil, the US, uh, and West Africa to a lesser extent. So we're looking at the uh, really some of the main non OPEC producers um, from, from, from that perspective. Let's go to Alex Hazel, Senior Analyst at Wellingen's Energy Analytics. We've got an all-British lineup this morning, Alex, but I know you guys keep a strong focus on Asia. Is Paul and Matthew a little bit over-egging the pudding there? I mean, we had the U.S. economy print a 4.9% growth in the third quarter uh, with all the basis points on interest rates peaked now and rates uh, yields coming off. So where is China at? It could hardly have a worse year than it's had this year. And and so all things considered, U.S. economy moving, China could be better next year. A rollover is enough, no? I, I think gen, generally, I actually tend to agree with Paul and Matt, to be honest. Well, um, then you're China. fired. Bring on the next yeah, person. Yeah, I know. So, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not bringing a contrast uh, to, to this conversation as much. Um, I think what, what we're tending to see out of China is that demand remains quite weak. And you also have a lot of trade tension between the US and China. It's unclear how quickly China is going to recover from uh, its various uh, from the various tensions that are going on. Um, the other challenge is uh, data coming out in terms of things like Russia, for example. Um, we're talking about how uh, different quotas are going to be divided up. And we don't really know for sure how much Russia is exporting because it's not releasing the data to OPEC. So that is, a, and that is a major challenge for OPEC is how do they adjust quotas when potentially there's a major source of someone breaking that quota system. Uh, is Saudi Arabia willing to, and, and that's what Russia did back in the 90s. And so is Saudi Arabia willing to go down, go down the same route again for another year uh, or deepen the cuts even further? I think I it's it's a real challenge. So I think they'll probably kick the can down the road. Is our is our baseline view, and they'll just keep the cuts uh, for, for the coming year and roll them over. Paul, I wanted to get your vo your insights on. Uh, I mean, it's slightly semantics and insider baseball, as the American parlance goes. But that OPEC now is facing a decision. I mean, there's obviously the need to support prices and to quote unquote, balance the market, as they would call it, uh, and keep a tight frame between supply and demand. But then there's the, the the sort of underpinning of that, ultimately, which is keeping quotas and reality in the same bucket. And we've spent a lot of the last sort of COVID recovery where uh, 
quotas, officially designated quotas and capacity to produce at those quotas have been disconnected for many members, uh, particularly the African members uh, and those that are not investing in the uh, rehabilitation of production capacity. How big of a challenge or big of an issue is that, do you think, at this moment, getting those two things into alignment before you can start building a strategy for 24? You've got to get reality into the same bucket. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good point, Sean. And um, I think... When you have, when we, we were back here in, you know, six months ago um, with the UAE and with the African baselines and it was all drawn up. So clearly when that agreement was struck, people were left there not that happy. And they there was a few, uh, probably why the lollipop came out, it helped everyone suck up, especially some of the African producers probably uh, suck up that deal. Um, but that can has been kicked down the road and we're, we're back here again. Um, it's difficult for the, some of the African producers because their, their production has been all over the place, given the, you know, a lot of the issues they've had, um, trying to make some sort of recovery, um, especially in Nigeria and Angola. They've tried, you know, they've started to try and turn it around, but you're never quite sure. I, I'm not sure how, how big an issue the buckets are. I mean, I'd like to be more controversial and say, you know, I mean, Look at the look at the look at the agreement. Look, look at how they stick to the quotas. There's normally some wiggle room. You know, you've already got several months to whether how quickly, how much you can stick to quotas. You normally can sort of agree. You know, you can overproduce for a little while. No one really, you know, Iraq was doing that for ages uh, back a few years ago. Um, I mean, if you look at the question of the African qu quotas versus their production capacity, if you just reduce their quota to their production capacity. You already grab a nice headline in terms of deeper cuts, if you know what I mean. Although they're ultimately fictional. Yeah, and that's that's also a problem. I mean, you know, fiction and reality. You know, I think there's, I think OPEC Plus is probably they've been trying to overhaul and reform for many years, and and they've been making changes, being more flexible, meeting monthly, all really positive changes. But there's probably still more overhaul to be had. Exports versus production is another big is, is another big pain point for them as well. What is actually coming out of storage? What's coming out of actual production? The wellhead. There's lots of probably other issues, and this allows this kind of you know what you what you say, Sean, fiction versus reality. And I think there's also one other thing we should talk about, uh, which is market structure. It's not just the flat price for for OPEC, OPEC Plus, and the Saudis. It's also market structure, making sure get you know um, you know. It, keeping stuff out of storage you know that that that's also privately opec plus delegates are concerned about market structure i know it seems a bit of a technical thing but it is important go you know long you know the market further down the road and that's also an important consideration so there are other considerations even though that sort of 80 dollar barrel floor is very important for them right now the question, Matthew, I wanted to uh, bring you in on uh, that we've seen bubble up uh, and, and getting certainly coverage and uh, is the resurgence in the sanctions enforcements on um, Russian exports and, and particularly those tankers that uh, and those fringe companies, perhaps, but also fairly established uh, actors in, in, in Europe as well, uh, that we've seen some tankers now back away from lifting Russian crude. Your thoughts, Matthew, on whether this 
sort of builds to being anything of scale that could uh, uh, have an impact on on Russia getting its oil to market, which it has done very successfully over the 18 months of its invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, so, yes, uh, the Russian price cap is sort of, got renewed interest in the last month or so, even though Euros has been trading above the price cap since July, Espo has been above the price cap since January. Uh, there was a bit of a lull in that I think G7 and the US sort of sat back to take stock of, of what should we do about this? Because I think they were quite fortunate when the price cap came in um, last year that the, the crude price was actually very low and stable for a long period of time. They didn't, the price cap worked by accident um so now yeah th- there's we've got 30 company shipping companies have been um sent letters basically to say could you please show us your due diligence around how you you've been handling the price cap and yeah there were three ships were sanctioned last week or the week before and then there was a couple before that so the three ships is nothing not a big deal and and to be honest they're all soft complot ships so they're just sanctioning Russian ships, not not an issue. The 30 letters is more of a concern, not, and I mean more concern in terms of we're going to see more of a market reaction because they are the ones who are either owned within a European country or use European or US services and insurance. And like you said, we've already seen at least three Greek own Greek owners step away, having previously been more involved in loading Russian crude and refined products. So what that does is that basically reduces the count, the reduces the, the size of the fleet that is loading from Russia. So the Russian freight premium has gone up. And what that's doing is it's pushing some of those ships out into the sort of the non-Russian fleet and, and is going to depress rates there. At the moment, I'm not concerned around any issues in terms of the ability to load from Russia. Uh, there's plenty within what we refer to as like the grey fleet and the dark fleet um, to to sort of maintain Russian crude exports. But if there's more efforts sort of pushed ahead around enforcing and or, or sort of furthering sanctions around Russian exports, then we might start to see uh, some tightness that could cause an issue. Uh, but at the moment, uh, it's more that we're going to see a reduction in the Greek, the number of Greeks involved, and an increase in in uh, the great the the, the gray fleet. Alex, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the obviously COP twenty eight is about to kick off here in the UAE tomorrow. The Pope might not be coming, but a lot of other big hitters are uh, in terms of of this important event. And I know Wellingen's has been doing a, a lot of coverage recently on carbon capture storage. Uh, presence in the UK and a report on Wintershall, etc. I'm just wondering from your perspective, with all that's, uh, you know, COP28, big event, we saw uh, uh, COP26 in particular seem to have some resonance for the energy industry, given how strong the energy transition came out of Glasgow and then faded uh, as um, energy security soared to the forefront. I'm wondering, should the oil and gas markets be paying attention to COP28 this year? Is there anything that could come out of it to impact the direction uh, of oil and gas markets over the coming months? Uh, your thoughts on the how much the oil and gas markets should be keeping an eye on events in Dubai over the next two weeks? Well, I don't think, um, I think oil and gas companies do, uh, have always looked at uh, COP, 
well, COP26, COP27, and everyone's looking for indications about how quickly governments and regulators are, are going to move towards an energy transition um, agenda, effectively. Um, a lot of, uh, particularly the challenge in terms of developed economies, as, as they were, um, how quickly they're going to go towards a CCUS uh, function. Uh, we've certainly seen that in Europe, uh, with a lot of new CCS licenses being awarded, uh, projects being pushed forward. A lot of the below ground issues have now been, have been sorted. And um, a lot of the challenges have been above ground in terms of sorting out regulations and uh, and basically and the legal regulation around transport of CO2, for example. Um, we've seen agreements now to capture carbon in Belgium and the Netherlands to send to projects in Denmark, uh, such as Greensands, and to, um, and to Norway at uh, Northern Lights. So we're starting to get those regulations in order. And really, for the CCUS element, they need working examples to show how a subsidy system would work and how the market's going to work and to set a floor effectively for the returns that oil companies can get. And part, part of those learnings are going to be, I guess, brought across into, into, into COP28. Um, the, the other element will be uh, how... Is, is ensuring supply to developing markets. So ultimately developing, uh, developing markets, Africa is trying to increase its production. It needs investment ultimately um, in terms of fossil fuels, but then challenges how to convince uh, banks who are meant to be going towards a green agenda, funding the energy transition, how are they gonna maintain investment going into the, um, into the oil and gas markets to ensure that we don't get a, um, a, a rough transition a rough transition, as it were, from from an oil-based economy to to a renewable-based economy. So I, I think it's it's probably more going to be about sentiment than anything particularly practical. There'll be a few learnings coming across in terms of maybe CCUS, but they're relatively nascent industries. It's more about the direction of travel and ensuring that uh, the that the transition is smooth from oil to renewables. Uh, so certainly, I think Europe got caught out on that um, from a geopolitical standpoint in 2022. And uh, I think well, I mean, it was just, I mean, I was, uh, I suppose, um, a, a smooth transition, you would say, but what the Germans had done with their whole overly dependent on Russia was just bad, bad management. I mean, nothing to do with anything other than maybe addiction to cheap gas. I suppose that's not insignificant. Uh, let's go to the survey question uh, and um, get a thought fr from the room and, and we'll post it on social as well. Just the immediate sense. I mean, Alex is just talking there more, you know, mid to long term relevance. But do you expect COP28 outcomes to have any impact on the direction of global oil markets in the first quarter? I mean, like tomorrow, anything coming out of Abu Dhabi? Should oil traders be disrupting their Christmas vacances? Uh, and celebration of those bumper bonuses to keep an eye on headlines coming out of Dubai, or is it uh, nothing of immediate uh, uh, relevance to them? I mean, where do you think it connects with the oil markets? Yes or no is the thoughts on that. Uh, Paul, there is some reporting today that um, on Bloomberg uh, and others that OPEC may indeed, OPEC Plus, postpone this meeting even once again. Uh what would that tell you? Would the markets care? We just drift along. Your thoughts of the impact of this kicking the ball down the can down the road, so to speak, by OPEC Plus? 
I think first of all, um, it shows that actually, yes, it could, you could you could look at both ways. You could look at that that they're still far apart on agreement, but also they're committed to getting a deal over the line. So I think that, and I think if you're if you're if you're moving the moving the if you're shifting it further, it means they're quite close, but it's just not quite there yet. And I think it suggests that there will be an agreement. Whether the market reads it that way. Sometimes they like to, you know, depend on where people are positioned in terms of the market, and they sometimes like to to, to kick the market, kick kick OPEC, and kick the, you know, if it's a bearish mood at the moment, it could go down a peg again. But it's probably going to bounce back up towards the eighty um, as you start getting the rumours again come out towards likely rumours that you you're going to get a deal over the line. So I don't think it's going to affect too much. Um, what I would like to say as well, I just want to pick you up, Sean, on, on yeah. the CQS uh, topic, which is yes. quite interesting because the IEA and the and the OPEC have got into a little bit of a spat about CQS. And they certainly it, have. It's it certainly been a political football uh, coming into COP. Um, I think it was interesting because I think the IEA report was slightly um, misrepresented in the media, in some parts of the media, about being an illusion. I think they, they're very... The IEA are very supportive of CCUS. They talk about it being a credible and, and critical part of the transition. But I think this is where we're at in terms of COP in, in the sense that CCUS is a crucial part of the mix for oil and gas companies to decarbonize. Um, and yet in previous COPs, it's really been about excluding oil and gas companies from, from the debate and about um, you know just moving to renewables. So it will be interesting the fact it's being held in the UAE and and how important a role decarbonizing of the oil and gas industry is on the agenda and talked about. Um, it clearly is a, a real important point. I mean, the fact that that is, has, has come up as an issue when CCUS is, is a really recognized technology of, of the transition. So it is a, is, it, this, this will be an important point. I just wanted to raise that as well, Sean. Thanks. Yeah, I wanted to, to to get some thoughts from you also uh, as we go into the uh, question uh, in um, where we're at in, uh, in 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 regards to China, Matt, and and some of the the trade uh, routes and, and and the the sort of you know the, obviously the tanker traffic and the container traffic, a lot of that is uh, in terms of the outlook is the Christmas season. Obviously, we're kind of from a shipping point of view, probably already past that. But we have the China New Year coming. Do we see anything in, in, in as I said earlier, that the tea leaves of, of tanker and container pricing and traffic into the first quarter that would lead us to believe that China uh, can make, uh, you know, a, a, an improved recovery from this year? So, um Firstly, looking on the crude crude and refined product side, the, the thing with China is because they have this export and import quota system for crude and refined products, it becomes quite lumpy. So at the moment, we're heading into the end of the year. So people are either trying to use up quotas or or you know trying to drag them out. And as it and on the crude import, uh exp, crude exports to China have been falling for the last couple of months because they're short on uh crude uh import quotas and they're actually turning more to residue so they're bringing in a lot more residue for secondary units to sort of make up for that and then on the products export side they're very very short as well so we've got product exports now this doesn't actually mean that the that the economy is struggling just based on that so you don't want to overinterpret what that means it's just that they that the government has sort of been short when we move into the next year we're going to get a re you know it will be the first 
the first month will be really interesting to see what the first allocation of those import and export quotas are, because that will be their interpretation on, okay, this is going to be our product export strategy. And this is what we think, you know, these are the refiners we want to support. These are the refiners that we don't want to support. So that will be the first indication of what their interpretation is on that side. Um, I think the, you know, regarding China's wider economy, I, th I think I mentioned before, I think, when you get negative news from China, people tend to over extrapolate it somewhat. D don't get me wrong. The there's they've got some problems, um, particularly in the um, uh, property sector, but uh, they're still growing. And, uh, you know, we're definitely not anticipating any any major collapse or um, severe contraction. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting um, first six months. Alex, one of the things that we've been following, uh, obviously, as we were talking earlier about the challenges that some of the uh, African countries and others have in, in expanding or recovering their production capacity, uh, the other big question has been uh, the increase in production capacity outside of OPEC+. Plus. We saw U.S. upstream and shale in particular doing uh, having a bumper year up above 13 million uh, we're seeing uh, obviously Guyana and other places. What are your thoughts going into the new year about the extra capacity coming that OPEC needs to keep an eye on, that this sort of non-OPEC group can continue to invest and continue to add production capacity at $80 Brent? Well, my, my, um, the classical example obviously is Guyana. Uh, Guyana is very rapidly uh, building up its as a small country with large volumes of oil. It's going to become quite a substantial exporter over the coming decade. Uh, certainly, Chevron basically spent sixty billion dollars to buy Hess on the basis that Guyana is going to deliver these uh, huge export volumes. Um, but in terms of immediate supply, um, there's there's a few projects um, ongoing, but I don't think there's anything... I mean, we've seen in the, in the shale patch over the last six... Every oh. month there's an extra ability to add extra barrels. What about in the North Sea? At these price levels, does the North Sea look interesting in terms of new capacity? So in ter in the, shale the shale patch has shown some signs of getting a bit softer in terms of rig counts. So there is an element of slowing down there. Um, it is still producing over 13 million, as you said. So there is probably some softness there that maybe it could drop slightly. But in terms of the North Sea, realistically, um, Norway has very little spare capacity left over. And the moves about a year or two, year or two ago now, uh, putting in different uh, windfall taxes on oil and gas producers, uh, ch chilled some investment activity that was recovering uh, from, from the oil price the oil price crash previously um, and the oil price rise. So in terms of the North Sea, there is some there is some limitations. Things like there are a couple of green shoots in terms of Tyra in um, in Denmark is expected to reach um, first oil in Q1, uh, which should open up gas export capacity from Denmark. Um, there is potentially in, in an emergency case if gas um, drops down, then Groningen could be reopened. But in terms of actual spare capacity, in terms of hydrocarbon production, the North Sea has very limited um, ability to lift up uh, petroleum production. It seems so difficult even these days blowing some wind farms. 
<laughs> Paul, let's get the, uh, the the survey result to give you last word. I wanted to get your thoughts on one of the things we've seen, and big, big no in this room regarding relevance of COP to the oil markets, but we've seen uh, in, in terms of the um, fund managers and, uh, and the hedge funds turn away from uh, oil, uh, a big drop in, in in hedge funds and money managers that seem to be shorting down by half over the last three months from over, over 600 million under 300 million. Uh, what relevance that is in OPEC's decision making? I know the Saudi energy minister keeps quite a close eye on this particular data point. Well, ultimately, it's still the physical markets that's the OPEC can control the physical markets and the link between the physical market and the futures and financial markets is still relevant. It amplifies to the upside and it amplifies down to the downside, but it's still they still converge. And the important point to remember is you take take enough oil out off the market, it's going to have an impact on supply and demand fundamentals and ultimately the structure of the market. Yes, there is certainly gets complicated by by hedging and and certain positions in the market but that's but that's ultimately the issue and i think one other thing is important to remember that you know the fact that opec has created a nice problem for itself hasn't it you just talk about all this non-opec supply it's got what it's achieved it's achieved when it achieves opec at 80 dollars and creates more supply coming on and more investment what it wants this is the this is the headache it has you know this is the classic mark you know adage of high oil prices cure of high oil prices you know it's this is this is going to be the wrestle for opec will have going forward if it's successful with 80 dollars that it's going to have bringing more supply on and incentivize producers which is the aim of the game as long as it i suppose doesn't end up eating their lunch which is what we saw 10 years ago when shale arrived on the scene in the first place We'll have to leave it there, but I would take note of this point. It's only a few weeks ago the Saudi energy minister quite specifically uh, reminded the uh, speculators, as he called them, that they were getting this one wrong. And we do know he has form in making them ouch. So I still I wouldn't rule that out again with uh, you know the the combined position of hedge funds and money managers. Now down to just 20, 225 million barrels, having been uh, at the close to you know six hundred plus only a few months ago, which is now at the lowest percentile within twenty million barrels of a record low, a record low on this uh, uh, net position. So I think something that the the Saudi energy minister is probably looking at whether he's corralling the whole group. To a big ouch. Uh, I don't know. I'd be cautious shorting this market. We'll have to leave it there uh, and thank our speakers, our guests uh, uh, for their words and insights today. Really great to have uh, their contributions. Matthew Wright at Kepler, Paul Hicken at Petroleum Economist, uh, and Al Alex Hazel at Wellagence Energy Analytics. There's analytics and economists and intelligences all over the place, uh, but I appreciate all of their insights. If I don't see you guys again, uh, ho, ho, ho. Happy holiday season to you all and look forward to catching up in the new year. All the best.